Voice America Empowerment. Help, I need somebody. Help, not just anybody. Help, you know I need someone. Welcome to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. Family caregivers don't have to be alone in their experiences. You will hear from experts and other caregivers facing the same issues that you may be facing. Now, here is your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Welcome to Episode 145 of Family Caregivers Unite. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, your host. Since retiring from medical practice, I've become an activist for family caregiving. Our topic today is death with dignity. Researchers in the European Union recently studied what they call non-acute death. What that means is death which occurs at the end of an incurable and lingering disease like cancer, Lou Gehrig's disease, and many others. That's non-acute death. The researchers discovered that non-acute death accounted for 202 million of the 480 million deaths in the European Union in 2007. And very likely, in North America, non-acute death will also be around 40%. The discovery led the researchers to urge governments to put more resources into palliative care. Palliative care aims at providing comfort for the person nearing death, and also at maximizing quality of life for the person, family, family caregivers, and loved ones. Various ways exist and always have existed to provide comfort at the end of life. One way is when the person himself or herself decides that the time has come to bring a peaceful end to life, so he or she ceases eating. Another way is to let nature take its course without interference, such as the do-not-resuscitate decisions that hospital doctors and nurses uh, make when all hope is exhausted. And yet another way is giving the person the option to choose to die with medical assistance. And always the aim is to enable the person to die with dignity, which is why our guest today, Michael Vaughn, is talking about death with dignity. Michael is a lawyer, policy director of the British Columbia Civil Liberties Association. She's been an adjunct professor in the Faculty of Law at the University of British Columbia and an adjunct professor at the University's School of Library, Archival and Information Studies, where she teaches information ethics and intellectual freedom. She's a regular guest instructor for the university's College of Health Disciplines, interdisciplinary interdisciplinary elective in HIV AIDS care. She's a frequent speaker on a variety of civil liberties topics, including privacy, national security, patients' rights, policing, surveillance, and free speech. She's a board member of the Canadian HIV AIDS Legal Network, and she's an advisory board of Privacy International. So welcome to the show, Michael. Oh, nice to be here. Thank you so much. Okay. Now, let's start. Please tell us more about your professional career, and particularly your work in civil liberties. Well, uh, as a lawyer who works in civil liberties, I work with uh, a number of lawyers and, and other workers here in, uh, in an association that is dedicated to um, the underlying rights that support our uh, our democracy. 
So certainly they range everything from privacy to liberty to democratic rights to voting to patient rights of all kinds. It's a, it's a very broad spectrum of rights that we um, that we support, and we do that through um, education initiatives, through policy work, and certainly through strategic litigation. We either um, come to court and we support a plaintiff who's bringing a claim, quite often a constitutional claim, uh, about rights in Canada, or rarely, although interestingly, uh, very, very importantly, we sometimes bring our own test case litigation where we've seen a gap in the law or something that needs to be redressed, and we bring the um, the action on our own behalf. So that's kind of the um, the work of civil liberties in a nutshell. Right. Now... Just come to our topic now. What does death with dignity mean to you, as you personally, and how and why did you become involved with it as a legal and social matter? Well, patient rights um, have always been uh, at the heart of my concerns around civil liberties. Uh, I come from the old days in the AIDS movement. And certainly, uh, AIDS will give you, uh, you know, AIDS in the 1980s will give you a very, very stark introduction to all, all kinds of civil liberties issues, um, ranging from privacy to autonomy to matters around the end of life. So patient autonomy, control, choice, and understanding about what constitutes a good death and what kind of, um, concerns people have at the end of life uh, has been very much a part of my um, uh, professional interest in civil liberties and one of the reasons why I was so delighted that the association took the initiative to develop the test case in this area that we did. Now let's go to that test case because, and we're going to say the full name, the British Columbia Civil Liberties Association filed this test case, as I understand it, with the purpose of changing law on medical, medically assisted dying. So, Michael, what was the outcome and what is the significance of that outcome for patients and family caregivers? Well, the outcome was tremendous from our perspective. Um, this is a case, we call it the Taylor case, um, the lead plaintiff, Gloria Taylor. Um, the Taylor case was, a, uh, in, a in a sense, uh, a rehearing of a case that we had almost 20 years ago at the Supreme Court of Canada in which Sue Rodriguez challenged the criminal code prohibition against um, assisted dying. And very narrowly, by a 5-4 decision, lost. So the constitutional challenge was not successful almost 20 years ago. We brought um, essentially the same case, but with various new components to the court's attention. Um, and we, on our first rung, uh, we we're at the first level of court, the BC Supreme Court, we were successful. Many people thought that the, um, the Rodriguez decision would stand, uh, but the court found that the provisions as they currently stand are unconstitutional. Now, before we um, get very carried away with what this means for a raft of other people, we are in a bit of a holding pattern because the, um, the federal government has appealed. So that means we have at least one more rung and almost assuredly two. This is destined for the Supreme Court of Canada before we get a law that is generally applicable, uh, that would, or rather, 
before we get a change in the law that would be applicable to all Canadians. But at this juncture, it's a very, very important victory um, that the court heard the new arguments that we have to make about why things have changed since the um, the uh, earlier decision in Rodriguez. Right. Now, I understand that the there's more to come in the way of legal action and decision-making, but nevertheless, I still want to ask you to talk about the significance for patients and family caregivers. What should they read into this, uh, these legal judgments and the way things are going? And what should they be thinking about as a result of those judgments or decisions? Michael? Well, what we have right now is we have a recognition by the court in the, in the, in this first round of the Taylor case, um, that the current law, the existing law, violates the rights of the seriously and incurably ill. And this is tremendously important, uh, because it sets the stage for all of the other, um, hearings to come in terms of the evidence, the considerations of the court, um, how they viewed this as not only an issue that um, pertains to um, people who are facing end-of-life decisions, but also their family. Uh, one of the things that um, you, you know if you've ever looked at the criminal code provisions is that um, they criminalize assisted dying in ways that uh, affects family members. And indeed, beyond Gloria Taylor, in terms of plaintiffs, we also had two, um, a couple who had recently assisted uh, their mother to um, die in one of the jurisdictions where assisted dying is legal. And they uh, were very, very candid in saying that they were concerned about their criminal jeopardy in helping their loved one um, achieve what they felt was a good death. And so, you know, it really is the, the whole issue about death with dignity is deeply embedded in family structures. And so often it is, um, it is family who are caretaking, um, certainly family that are involved and certainly families that are um, the, uh, the circle of care and the people who are most intimately tied with this. And that the government has um, essentially mandated using the harsh tool of the criminal law, what we are allowed to assist um, with in this um, in this very very personal, delicate realm, uh, is something that you know. Again, we've had a recent Supreme Court of Canada's decision um, in the Rodriguez case. We have been very very grateful that the court heard the new evidence that we had to bring forward on this. Right. Just quickly now, because we're going to go into the inevitable break in a moment, but let me just follow up on something you said. Um, the, the, it's been acknowledged then that law as it currently stands violates um, the rights of people. Now, is that something that the federal government specifically is appealing? Do they want to, in other, in other words, reverse that particular part of whatever the legal, legal law, the judgment was? Um, yes. I mean, essentially what you're looking at whenever you look at the, um, at the criminal law or so many policies that involve civil liberties is you're looking at the contest between more than one good. And so um, this case 
really turns on Section 7 of the Charter, which is everyone's right to life, liberty, and security of the person. And what the government has essentially said in a nutshell is um, this provision is too dangerous. It could cause terrible abuses. So we are guarding against those abuses, and guarding against abuse is another good and so it's really up to the court to try to weigh the evidence around these two arguments to find the proper balance. And so while the government is not saying, um, you know, uh, we don't want you to have rights, what the government is arguing is that they're, um, they're operating, as it were, at a higher level of the greater good. And what the Taylor case turns on, again, sort of at the, at the bottom rung, is whether or not the government has any evidence for that argument. Very interesting. Now, we're going to have to take the break because, as I always say, this is where we pay our rent. <laughs> so this is Dr. Gordon Adderley. My guest is Michael Vaughn. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety Channel. Please stay with us. We're coming back. Success starts here. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. It's your world. We let so many outside factors mold and shape our lives. Technology, instant delivery. We live in an on-demand world. What's happened to the compassion, the kindness, a better pace? Listen to Might Radio with host Gabriella Von Ray. We'll bring that kindness and compassion back to our world. Our guests come from around the world and will discuss what's being done and what we can do to bring our lives back to order. Might Radio is broadcast live every Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Find out what makes the most successful people tick. Keep listening to the Voice America Empowerment Channel. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. That's D-O-C, the letter G, at familycaregiversunite.org. Don't forget, you can catch new episodes of our program twice every week. Mondays on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Michael Vaughn. Our topic is Death with Dignity. Let's talk about the meaning of death with dignity, why your association focused on medically assisted dying and what the people who participated in the case wanted the court to understand. So first of all, Michael, what does death with dignity mean and what does it not mean? Well, um, I don't know that we've been using the phrase particularly as a term of art, um, but we've certainly applied it to um, our case. And our case is a very narrow carve-out. As I said, it doesn't deal with broad-based autonomy, um, people who simply feel that they no longer um, wish to live. Um, what we're focused on very, very tightly is the seriously and incurably ill. Um, that particular carve-out is where we approach this 
And again, the sense of, you know, the, the fear of a suffering and a, a suffering long and painful death uh, is something that needs to be met head on. Uh, and when you're looking at the kinds of patients who are bringing themselves forward in this case, in this case, um, Gloria Taylor herself who suffers from Lou Gehrig's disease, um, you, you, these are not, these are not unfounded concerns. Um, this is something that is, um, a, a quantifiably understandable concern. And when you look at the ramifications of what happens when people are concerned that they're going to be incapacitated to the point where they are not going to have effective control over end-of-life decisions. One of the aspects of this case is the testimony of people who said, I am afraid, I am so ill-equipped to ensure a good death that I am going to die before I need to, while I am still physically capable, but while I would not choose to, because my fear of that incapacity at the end of life, that long, that long painful suffering is so acute that indeed my life is at risk. The life that I would have with my loved ones, um, with my family, as, you know, really drinking life to the lees as long as I could, that's what's at issue here because I don't have the dignity of choice at the end of my life. Now, I want to ask you why the Civil Lib- British Columbia Civil Liberties Association took up changing the law regarding medically assisted dying. But I think I should ask you first, just what exactly do we mean by medically assisted dying? Um, well, we're, we're looking at physician-assisted death. Um, certainly there are, um, there are a number of groups who are interested in uh, medically-assisted dying that, that does, does not choose necessarily to limit uh, the, the jurisdiction of their uh, advocacy efforts to physicians only. But again, our, our purview on this is extremely narrow. Um, we, are, we are advocating for physician-assisted dying in the um, prescribed circumstances that we have set out in our, in our um, legal arguments. Why did you narrow it in that way? Um, well, really, the, um, the, the issues presenting themselves in terms of the law, um, you know, we thought that the, um, the move here to um, physician-assisted dying um, was one that we could understand on the basis of the evidence wholeheartedly. Um, when we're dealing with issues about the potential for abuses outside of the narrow constraints of operating within a, um, a physician's environment, you, um, you introduce the potential for the kinds of abuses that are so much a part of the government's concern. Now, we're not saying necessarily that those, those concerns couldn't be met, but clearly the kinds of um, calls that we were hearing for people were they wanted they want they were calling on their physicians for that assistance that's the place where people felt like um, the expertise resided and where they had the level of trust that would allow them to seek this this form of care so certainly from the ground up that was something that we've been hearing from people right 
Now, let's talk about the the word I think is plaintiffs, that is the plaintiffs, the, the persons who appeared in the case that uh, presumably you called on. Please tell us what the points were that they wanted to make to the judge, the things they said, the things that they wanted, the things that they were urging. Michael? Well, um, our, our, our lead plaintiff, if you will, who is Gloria Taylor, um, who uh, has ALS, as I, as I mentioned, um, you know, she's a spitfire. <laughs> she has been the most amazing spokesperson for this cause because not only did she tell the judge, but she told the public in various media interviews when she's well enough to give them that she doesn't want to die. She wants to live. And that this assurance that she is seeking that she can get a a physician-assisted death when the urgency of her case um, simply um, calls for that, when, when she feels the time is right, will allow her to live as full a life as she is capable up into that extent. And I think that's a very important message, um, the sense of, you know, this is really a tool um, to assist people in living as full a life as they can um, at the end of life. And so that was that was a very keen message. Um, the, the, the couple that assisted their uh, their mother in this regard, you know, one of the things that they said that I thought was tremendously moving was that um, because they had to leave the country essentially by stealth, um, to ensure that they weren't stopped and that, you know, they're, um, that they were able to, uh, comply with her wishes. They said she was not able to say goodbye to anyone. And again, when we look at the, the kind of jeopardy that people are put in to, um, to make this last loving act, you have to say that is not a good death. Um, that is not a good death when Canadians need to leave the country to assist a, be- a beloved parent uh, in, in this regard, who that parent is then not able to say their goodbyes to family. I, I think when we, we think about these things, um, you know, we may have the notion that these are people who want to die or there's something, um, you know, there's something essentially that we could, we could do, um, as you say, you know, this sense of surely palliative care would cover off, um, you know, many of the concerns. And what we heard from the plaintiffs is palliative care is not in competition with physician-assisted dying. They are wholly complementary. Um, no one is looking for a, uh, um, you know, a physician-assisted dying to any way usurp not only the, the current um, palliative care regime, but a, a much broader one and a much expanded one. But the, the stories that the plaintiffs told were something that could not be, could not be remedied except with the sense of control by the person at the end of their life. No, just let me go back to a couple of words you've used. Good death. Is that the same thing as death with dignity? That that phrase that I'm using in the title. Are those in your mind the same things or are they something different? Um, I, again, I'm not using the language as a term of art. This is language that ordinary people use when they talk about um, a death that is not um, that is not painful, in which some aspect of control uh, or is, is felt, um, where the the 
desires of the of the person who is dying uh, can be complied with in terms of who they wish to have with them and how how they wish um, how they wish to have their their last uh, days be. So a, a good death, I have to say, um, perhaps I use the term in a way that really augments the autonomy, right, the liberty of the person in question, um, their ability to affect their choices, because it will vary for people. Um, you know, there, there are certainly people who, uh, who don't wish to have, uh, the, you know, be surrounded by the number of people that may be the desire of someone else. Um, the factors vary, but a good death, like death with dignity, means some sense of the ability to control and have this look like what you would like it to look like, um, since this is, after all, your life and your death. So, to put it in, into terms that I would perhaps respond to you, this is a matter of choice. Um, it, you've spoken about autonomy, decision-making, but it's in the end saying this is the way I would wish to live my life and to decide when the point has come that nature's cruelty with these diseases uh, mean that the quality of my life is going to deteriorate to the point where uh, it becomes anguish or worse. Now, maybe I'm not expressing that correctly, so I want you to to comment back to see if I've at least understand understood part of what it is that you're you're working for and on, Michael. Yeah, no, that's exactly it. Um, that's exactly it. And then the components of having this be um, physician guided, if you will, um, are things like you know ensuring that we are we are not dealing with uh, um, an illness that is um, not. That is retractable, essentially. That that there is some there's some hope of uh, you know a, a turn a turn in the trajectory of that illness. Um, the the idea of ensuring that we are talking about end of life decisions here um, is critical to understanding um, the, the nature of what we are discussing. But yes, you're exactly right. The sense of um, peace that comes from the knowledge that you have the ability to affect your personal choice. Um, this is obviously a decision with profound meaning for individuals and families. And if you have no means of affecting it, or you have the criminal law hanging over your head um, like a sword as you, uh, as you hope to assist uh, a loved one in making those choices, um, it really is, it's a, it's a very dire state for people, and more and more people are coming to understand that death is a part of life, and that these are decisions that face uh, that we are all faced with. Um, this is not a this is not a select group of Canadians. Hardly anyone we can imagine has not been touched um, with these concerns and dilemmas. That goes back to the forty percent of people dying from these chronic medical word but it's a lingering disease where the death takes place over a period of weeks or even months and what that then says is that we have to be sure the physician has to be sure that that really is the nature of the disease and that there's not a mistake 
Um, and also, if I'm putting words into wrongly, you'll put me straight. I think it's also a matter of arranging um, circumstances in such a way that, uh, may I call them cranks or cults or groups with particular interpretations, are not given authority in a critical situation like this. Just very quickly, yes or no, have I got that right about protecting really the knowledge and the skills so that the decision is based on sound understanding of a disease. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, we want, um, we want the court um, to be assured that mechanisms are in place um, to safeguard um, the vulnerable, and absolutely one of those, you know, one of the main mechanisms is that you have the ability to um, assess the nature um, of the, the illness, incapacity, etc., and that you have a physician there who is um, advising the patient in, in that way, authoritatively and with the skills and uh, that they bring to that practice. Right. Now, again, it's time for us to take the break, so let's do that now. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, and my guest is Michael Vaughn. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stay tuned, please. We're coming back. We're on Facebook, along with some of the greatest minds of the world, and that includes you. Visit us on Facebook at Voice America Empowerment. Are you a business innovator, or are you just sitting on the sidelines? Tune in every week for Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Host Bonnie D. Graham talks to a cross-section of the movers and shakers who are leading by example. They will share best practices and innovative ideas to keep you thinking and moving along with the best. Join us for Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP, Wednesday mornings at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Friend us on Facebook to keep up with what's empowering the world. Voice America Empowerment. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. That's D-O-C, the letter G, at familycaregiversunite.org. Don't forget, you can catch new episodes of our program twice every week, Mondays on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Michael Vaughn. Our topic is Death with Dignity. So let's explain and discuss medically assisted dying in some more detail. Now, You've already changed the terminology, Michael, so I'm going to suggest to you that you use physician-assisted dying, but I just want us to be clear uh, about the difference between medical and physician. Um, so do the substitution, but please explain to us in, in a way that will get it across just what the difference is between physician-assisted and medically-assisted. Um, well, in, in, the, in the vision that we have put forward, um, what, we, what we are suggesting to the court, what our plaintiff was asking for, 
is that a a physician um, guide the patient in terms of advising them uh, about the course of their illness and that they are in fact the administrators uh, of whatever means if the uh, if the patient decides according to the criteria and it's extensive maybe we could get into that at some point um, that they would um, that they would like that assistance in dying. So, um, so this is a, a physician-guided process in which, among other things, the patient is needing to be um, capable of understanding the nature and consequences of their decision. There's a capability issue here. This is not a matter of someone making a decision on um, on behalf of the patient of kind of a you know uh, a, a notion of uh, a medically affected decision of a family instituted decision. This is the person themselves in consultation with their physician according to a strict set of criterias, criteria which they would have to meet uh, and then making that decision with the physician. Right. Now, I know I'm pressing the point. Um, <laughs> let's just ask you this question then. What would be medically assisted dying? How would you describe describe that if it were not physician-assisted dying? Um, I don't know of that term as a term of art. Um, presumably there are other practitioners then. Is that what you're thinking? In terms yes. Of, yes. yes. Um, so yes, that is that is no part uh, medically-assisted dying. Uh, if, if it has that that breadth, that scope, in terms of its uh, of its potential application, that is not uh, not the uh, not the vision of the case that we have put forward. It's not the uh, it's not the not the notion that was before the court in this case. Right. Very. Thank you for clearing that up. Now, when should physician assisted dying be considered, and who should consider it? Well, um, it would definitely uh, what we've focused our case on is the autonomy of the patient themselves. So the capable patient who is seriously and incurably ill is really um, the person that we are addressing in terms of the, um, the scheme uh, that we've, we've put, put forward and what, we, what we've proposed to the court constitutes um, in legalese the overbreadth of the law. So you have to make a legal argument, and we say that the provisions of the court are overbroad because they capture this this narrow realm that we are discussing, where the effect of invoking the criminal law is grossly disproportionate to its benefits. So this small carve out includes patients who are capable, who are seriously and incurably ill. That's that's the who. Right. Now what? There are objections. Um, what are the chief objections to physician-assisted dying, and how are these responded to, those objections? Well, the main objection is that vulnerable people uh, will be um, uh, subject to the potential of, of, of abuse, um, so that vulnerable people could feel pressured, um, that people who are despondent or suffering from uh, deep depression would make choices that they would later um, re regret if there were later, that they, they simply aren't operating under the, their, um, their capacity uh, their unillness-related capacity to make a personal choice, 
and that there would be no means, essentially, of screening such people that could ever be 100% effective. Ergo, the law must err on the side of saying this cannot happen for anyone because the possibility exists that someone would 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 make a decision that would not rec- uh, represent their true desires um, or be pressured in some way, either um, by medical personnel or family or otherwise, um, be egregiously pre- pressured into making a decision that does not reflect their true desires. Um, so those are um, one class, uh, the, I would say the main class of concerns around around this. The other class is um, something that I've already mentioned just briefly, which is the notion that um, this is really an issue about palliative care. Um, and, and again, the sense of we are going to see palliative care somehow drained of resources or, or minimized or not used in appropriate fashion because people will simply be opting for um, physician-assisted dying, and so palliative care won't get the, um, get the focus and resources that it so direly needs. Okay. Now, it, I think I understood you to say that the couple who uh, uh, appeared in the case um, went to another country for the physician-assisted dying. So that leads to the question of how does the law on physician-assisted dying stand in various countries other than Canada? Well, this was really the essential question that kept coming back in the case. Um, The question of whether an appropriately tailored exception could be fashioned with effective safeguards, because that's really kind of, you know, where the rubber hits the road in the case. Um, And the evidence from other jurisdictions, but primarily from Oregon and Washington, from the Netherlands, Belgium, Switzerland, and Luxembourg, um, was key to this case. So, as I said, this is essentially, you know, a very similar case to one that was adjudicated by the Supreme Court of Canada. But the difference between then and now is that other jurisdictions have a lot of data about what their regimes look like, and essentially and they answer this question about whether or not abuses are rife, are, are these systems catching vulnerable people. So um, while the assisted dying regimes, um, physician-assisted dying, I, I should specify, in these regimes um, varied somewhat from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, Um, What the judge in the case found was that the evidence as a whole led her to conclude that the risks inherent in permitting physician-assisted dying can be identified and very substantially mitigated, minimized, through a carefully designed system that imposes very stringent limitations that are scrupulously monitored and enforced. So that's a lot of provisos, but um, that's the... That, that's good because we want a system that guards against abuse, and that is exactly the finding of the judge on the basis of the evidence from these other jurisdictions, one of which was accessed by the couple in the case. How, how many years ago was it that one or other of these jurisdictions actually adopted uh, physician-assisted dying within its laws? Um, you know, I'm not as familiar with all of the jurisdictions. Um, certainly, in almost all of these cases, what um, in all of the, the jurisdictions, so all of the examinations of all of the uh, the jurisdictions, there were medical experts and researchers 
who um, you know testified to the minutia of their um, their different regimes, and also on the research that has gone into finding out whether or not um, the abuses were taking the abuses were happening or were the were the regimes effective and some of the findings were so hardening you know you you would find regimes for example in which people had been granted um an exemption uh to the criminal law prohibitions that existed in that country so they've they've gone through the rigorous screening process. They've they they meet the stride limitations there. Um, they've they've been screened by their physician. They've got their physician sign off, and then they never used it. It was as if it was simply a a, an, a critically important peace of mind to allow them to um, you know live live out their, their natural lives. Other people, of course, did use it. But, you know, these are the sorts of things that you would never know unless you examined um, the data coming out of these different jurisdictions, um, That, let alone um, allowing people who are um, unduly influenced or otherwise vulnerable to get through the screen. Some people who got through the screen are, are so judicious in their use of these um, extraordinary powers that they, they didn't even call on them. And this rather emphasizes, doesn't it, the value of this research that's obviously going on in the countries where this is a, this uh, physician-assisted dying is legal. Um, what it means is that they're building experience and presumably if they find something that needs improvement, they have mechanisms for tightening up something or changing something. So in that sense, are you advocating as part of your general sort of uh, argument in favor of mm, physician-assisted dying that scrutiny by research should be part of the package, so to speak? It's been absolutely critical um, to explaining this, to understanding it, to crafting um, the appropriate uh, carve-out in in the law um, to do the good that we want to do and safeguard against um, the potential for abuse. Absolutely critical, that research has been. Um, and, it, and it goes beyond... Um, understanding what's happening uh, in the jurisdictions that uh, have some form of physician-assisted dying. It also looks at jurisdictions that don't uh, and what happens in the practices there and looks at questions like, as one of the questions before the court was, would Canadian physicians actually be willing to assist patients in this matter if it were legally permissible to do so? Um, you know, part of part of what we're arguing here is we need to we need to build uh, build this carve out. Um, we, there needs to be a scheme. Well, what do physicians think about it? What about this from a medical ethics perspective as well as a legal perspective? I mean, it really was um, the array of experts that were canvassed in this case was truly um, the revolutionary part of having the court assess this matter, um, not merely on the notion of what hypothetically could happen, but actually what the data shows does happen. Got it. Now, once again, it's time for the break. So this is Dr. Gordon Attery. My guest is Michael Vaughn. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stay tuned. We will be back.
It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Are you lost, fed up, knowing you're better, and yet not knowing why? Let Derek O'Neill transform the not knowing into the knowing by showing you the way. Whether it's not being able to drop the excess weight to unhealthy relationships or finances that you know you deserve. Derek provides insights that are like magnets to invite what you want in your life and repel what you don't want. Tune in to Derek now to discover how to improve your life immediately and unleash the winner that you know you are and others need to see. Listen Mondays at 9 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. That's D-O-C, the letter G, at familycaregiversunite.org. Don't forget, you can catch new episodes of our program twice every week, Mondays on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Michael Vaughn. Our topic is Death with Dignity. Now, Michael, I want you to talk about things that you would like to see done to advance what I'm calling dignity in death. I think you, you call it a good death. Uh, I'm going to equate the two. So what are the things you would like to see done by the healthcare system and its professions to advance this concept of the good death, dignity in death? Okay. Certainly one of the things I think of is... Um you know, the, the reiteration throughout this case from everyone across the spectrum about the importance of palliative care. Um, I really think that one of the ways we can advance the whole discussion is to just take off this table the sense of, oppos- you know, the, the, the opposing of physician-assisted uh, death with palliative care. Everyone agrees palliative care um, is critically important to the healthcare system. So, um, so, you know, the, um, the concerns about limited resources, et cetera, et cetera, and that they would be funneled away, uh, we really need to, to unite in our uh, lobbying for better palliative care. And so that there isn't this even conceptual opposition, right, that there's any tension between these two things. They're, they're perfectly in harmony. So I, I think that would, that would be good. Um, certainly, we need to start having these discussions in a more forthright fashion. Um, it, it is well known within the healthcare field um, that these discussions are rife internally. And yet, um, physicians, for all kinds of reasons, obviously the criminal law being one of them, um, have been reluctant to bring these discussions out into the public purview. One of the benefits of the case is that we are seeing genuine public discourse about something that is so critically important um, at this end of the um, uh, at the uh, um, the life spectrum in terms of healthcare. So we we have to keep having this discussion, 
and we are um, only going to be building, building momentum around um, what families and individuals want for themselves at the end of life. But you can't have that if we're all whispering to each other. It has to be a public debate because this is a public issue. Right. Now, it's the same question, but it's relating to government. So what are the things you would like to see done by governments and the justice system to advance uh, the good death, the dignity in death? Well, certainly one of the things that we would like to see is exactly, uh, as we were alluding to before, the investment in the kind of research that gives us evidence-based medicine. Um, that costs that costs money, and we want to see um, good, rigorous, independent research so we have the data to support um, all of our decision-making. And government and justice systems have a role to play um, in governments in helping to fund, resource that research, and justice systems in being uh, ready to receive it. And that, as I say, is part of the, um, the novelty of this case, is the amount of evidence, not just legal arguments, evidence to back it, that was before the court. And the court's very careful consideration of that evidence was critical to the outcome. Right. Now, what's your message for family caregivers with family members whose health conditions are causing them pain, suffering, and anguish as they travel this uh, path towards dying of serious, incurable illness? What's your message for them, both the family member and the family caregivers? Um, I... I would love to say that we were absolutely filled with hope that we were going to get um, the laws changed um, in a great hurry, um, but it takes a long time to get to the Supreme Court of Canada. We were very disappointed at the federal government's um, choice to appeal the decision that, um, that we did achieve. The government also appealed um, Gloria Taylor's own exemption, because while the law did not change, the court did give a one individual exemption from Ms. Taylor, um, demanding instead of her exemption that she continue to live with the fear of suffering a long and painful death. Um, I don't want to be naive about the opposition, but I can say that we've had a momentous um, debut in this arena uh, with this case and that momentum will build. So I, I think my message is um, please join us in having um, patients' autonomy rights fought for and won in the important field of dying with dignity. Michael, would you go so far as to say then public opinion in the sense that it's groups of people expressing their views, groups of people who talk about things, make their voices heard. Would you say those are part of the things that um, you would like to see family caregivers and their family members do? Um, I, I think if people have any doubts about this being an important thing to speak out on, um, I don't know if they want to read the 300-page tailored decision, but if they <laughs> did, if they did have a look, they would see one of the things that was before the court were polls. What do Canadians think? What do 
they want? What do they wish for themselves and their loved ones? And quite frankly, the, the numbers on that, although, you know, we can query um, how rigorous uh, those surveys are, and they could certainly be more rigorous, but the numbers itself, I think, are very telling. The vast majority of Canadians do support uh, a change in the criminal law for the kinds of careful carve-out um, that we have, uh, we have suggested. And um, that momentum uh, is going to build further from here, but already it's a very, um, it's a very compelling thing for the court to know that this is not a, um, a small minority of people who are fighting. This is, uh, this is the majority of Canadians who feel very strongly on this subject. I'm going to just introduce family caregivers as a particular group because this is what um, this program um, seeks to do. But also because you mentioned, um, uh, you know, the various things like palliative care that doesn't exist in isolation from family caregiving in most circumstances. The family, the family caregivers, and the family member who is on the sad road are together, and palliative care is very often a place where the final times are spent. But the family is around the family member, and the family caregivers will... I think in most situations have contributed to the decision for the family member to go into a palliative care facility. Now, not all palliative care necessarily is in a facility, but I think, I don't know the figures, but I, sus I suspect most of it is in Canada. So in that sense, family caregivers have a very basic interest in um, the openness of um, palliative care to families, and I don't think it's, I think everybody would agree it's not open enough, but also the openness to the kind of things, the good death that you are talking about and that you are making progress in bringing forward the debate so that eventually Canada aligns itself with other jurisdictions in enabling, um, with the proper precautions, the idea of the good death by choice to occur. Now, I just want to, I'm always seeking validation for something, but this notion that family caregiving is really part of the process. There will be circumstances where it's not, but for many, many families, family caregiving is part of this whole scene, this whole discussion. Do you agree with that, uh, Michael? I absolutely do. And as a as an uh, informal invalidation, or rather informal validation of that, I can tell you one of the um, one of the stunning reversals in the court was the sense of the um, the opposition, the government saying, and and some of the interveners saying, you know, we have concerns that family members are going to be pressuring um, their loved ones if they feel, you know pressuring them because they feel them to be a burden um, in caregiving or on resources, etc., um, to end their lives. And interestingly enough, the, the data, the evidence on that was exactly the opposite. Um, that family caregivers are such an integral component of providing end-of-life care um, that, if anything, many of the people who had made decisions uh, about 
you know, how, how they wanted to um, end their lives. Um, we're doing so with their families saying, we'll, we'll make any choice you want, but we're here for you. We'd prefer and stay, stay, stay as long as you can. Um, so rather than being part of the um, we need to watch out, for the vulnerabilities of people regarding families. Families were seen um, in terms of the, the scenarios that were prevented, uh, presented in the evidence as being integrally bound with all of the end-of-life issues that were happening and the decisions that were around them. And, of course, when we're talking about family, it's not only husband and wife, you know, in the traditional sense, it's people who live together, who care about each other, and who at the end of life still care about each other and therefore seek to have the good death, for the good death to occur, and for whatever relief that brings, and it does bring relief, and whatever sense of a life well lived, it creates that. And in the sense of this has been a good relationship, then the good death strengthens that in an optimistic and peaceful kind of way. So that's my kind of reaction to what you've been saying, Michael. And I want to say thank you very much indeed for making this so informative, so clear, and so so powerful in the sense of your passion uh, is very clear. And uh, all of us wish you success in achieving the discussion that you want to achieve. Now, Thank you. We couldn't have brought this case without the courage of the plaintiffs, and it's been absolutely an inspirational, and um, we, we can't, as Canadians, thank them enough. Great. Now, um, I'm going to also say thank you to our listeners, and I'm going to say we welcome hearing from listeners. So if you've got comments, please email us. And also we want to hear from people who would like to be our guests or who have suggestions for topics. So on this, responding to Michael, please do get back to us. In our next episode, we'll talk about Shattered Love, a film about pain and devastation caused by Alzheimer's disease. Please join us same time, same spot on the Internet. Talk to you then. Thank you again for joining us this week for Family Caregivers Unite with your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Please tune in again twice every week, Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until the next show, we hope our programs help make the coming week easier and more hopeful.